Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast, where we speak with women who dare to pursue their dreams and fly, literally and metaphorically. Every woman harbors the spirit of flight. And on this show, we explore the magic that happens when a woman charts her own course and pursues her dreams. In a world that tells us that we are too much or too little, too fast or too small, too loud or too quiet, it's easy to feel limited and boxed in. We're here to change the narrative. I am your host, Sylvia Winter. Today, I talk to big mountain skier and paraglider Kate Zeleff about her journey as a skier and a flyer. Getting air, high consequence zones in big mountains, wind and air dynamics, patience, intensity, presence of mind. This is Kate's sustenance and livelihood. We uncover how listening to her inner voice has served her and how she fell in love with the creativity of filming in flight and much more. Kate is living her dreams in many ways, calling Jackson Hole, Wyoming home and collaborating with the major and minor skill filmmakers like Warren Miller, Teton Gravity Research, and recently Matchstick Productions. I interviewed Kate last fall when I learned that she had taken up paragliding as a lifelong skier. It was the inspiration of a raven and perhaps her father as well. Kate has such a unique insight into why we do the things we do and how our past can be both familiar and foreign. Also, what drives a pro athlete or any athlete to keep getting out there and keep putting their lives on the line for the love of it? As part of our season three relaunch, we are revisiting a few of my favorite episodes that grapple with how a passion-driven life unfolds and why it matters that we grow with it. Thank you, Kate, for keeping it fun and real and sharing your story with us. This is my conversation with Kate Zeleff from Jackson, Wyoming. I'd love to start with your background and for you to tell us what you were like as a kid and what circumstances influenced who you are now. It's kind of always a funny one to look back on. I think as a child, I was incredibly shy like definitely just stuck to my mother's hip and was very tomboy, I think, as I started coming into myself as a child. Past like preschool, I started to enjoy sports when I was introduced to those in elementary school. Gravitated toward anything athletic for some reason. It just made sense to me. But I was very shy. I wasn't very outgoing. I I don't know why that was because my both of my parents are incredibly social and outgoing. So there was no real genetic reason for me to be so quiet. And then kind of, I I genuinely feel as I found ski racing and found some more self-confidence, I came into myself and was more, more excited to, I had something to talk about. So therefore I was excited to tell people about skiing and dreams and goals. And so I really do think about that moment when I was younger and I kind of found ski racing in fifth grade, there was like a, a quite a big shift I think my mom recognized, I definitely looking back on it, that's when I started to like get invited to sleepovers and kind of have more of a social crew, I guess. And then I was always incredibly motivated, incredibly driven. And it's funny because I remember being younger and just thinking that elementary school grades mattered so much. And looking back on it now, I wish I had known that they don't really matter for a ton. But from the beginning, I was really determined to have good grades and to push myself in all these ways. And it's so funny because I really didn't have that influence from my parents. There was never a lot of pressure on academics or sports even. And especially as I got older, there was times when my mom would 
just say, give yourself a break, like you're doing great. And so from a very young age, very driven, feel like I was kind of like a very small version of myself my whole life. Obviously, I've grown up in many ways, but a lot of the core values have been there the whole time. And where did you grow up? I grew up in a small ski town in the Mount Washington Valley called North Conway, New Hampshire. I actually went home from the hospital to Jackson, New Hampshire. My dad owned a small breakfast restaurant there. My grandparents owned an inn, very small town, northern New Hampshire vibes, and definitely created the human I am. Just the White Mountains in general were something I was lucky to look at my whole life. And I don't think it's any surprise that I've fallen in love with the mountains in the way that I have. Yeah, seriously. I mean, up there, you're pretty immersed in the mountains. And it's what everyone does. Like, at least when I was younger, skiing and outdoor activity kind of was just the way of life. And so it was like something I also was applauded for in some ways. Like I didn't necessarily ski because I got applaud, but it was just like what everyone did. And so when I was good at it, I was like, oh, good. I'm good at what everyone does around here. It's kind of, that was nice. I think it was, it gave me some sense of belonging. So you, it was small town and your parents were separated pretty early on. What influence did that have on you? Yeah, the whole childhood thing is funny because I think as you become an adult, you try to maybe separate yourself from those like the childhood stuff and you try to become an adult and and like not have that influence you. But the reality is like my childhood influenced who I am so much. And I think there are still drivers and motivators that I pull from my childhood, which is something that is I go back and forth on, but they got separated or they separated when I was nine months old. And I don't have much memory of the younger years, obviously, of that separation. But I do remember split time between my mom and my dad. And then when I got a bit older in third grade, I just had full custody with my mother. And I think the interesting part of that dynamic would be that my dad was the athletic genes in the family and my mom was very maternal and feminine. And so I feel like part of my kind of story or some of the reasons I was so interested in sport was because I also knew that that was something my father did. And that was a way to maybe connect with him or as a small child, you hear stories of your father ski jumping and paragliding and doing all of these things that you find really cool and something you're actually good at too. And then your mother is someone that's like not pushing you down that path, very supportive in any way possible. So therefore she supported me on that path, but just being so different than me in that way, like not really having any desire to go out and go skiing or go hiking. And so I think there was a part of me that craved that connection with my dad and and maybe in some funny way fostered my love for skiing as well as just like a natural ability. And that's why genetics are so cool because although my father wasn't around much as a kid, I have these mannerisms and I have these things that I do where my mom would say it was uncanny. She's like, it's, it's crazy. Like you just look so much like your father. And I think there was part of me that really grasped to that. I looked like him. I acted like him. I had similar interest to him. And so I think a lot of that really did fuel my desire to be an athlete. And I think there were parts of me that felt, and I've obviously like worked through this, but there are parts of me that felt that if I, if I succeeded in the things that he was good at, he would have interest in coming around. And I know that's like a pretty unhealthy desire as a young child. And I don't think I really even had it in my head like that. I think I just wanted to be good at the things that he was good at for whatever reason. It was just my way of coping. Yeah. You wanted to be seen. Totally. 
Exactly. Pretty basic. Same with the tomboy stuff. Like, I think that's why I really wanted to be a because I in my head I was like, the more I could be like my dad, the more he might. Because I did, I looked like him. It was crazy. It was like the photos as I got older and went through puberty, I started to look more like my mother. But as a child, it really was like weird because I I would see photos and our eyes were the exact same, and I remember that being really strange for me to see. Crazy, isn't it? So you said when you opened up the answer to that question, how when we get older we try to think of ourselves as distinctly different than our past, but maybe it's not that simplistic. Can we dig into that a little bit? What do you see from your past that shows up sometimes in unexpected ways or ways that you're working through? To be completely transparent and as honest as possible in relationships, I notice like romantic relationships or relationship, not so much friendships with men, but definitely like romantic relationships with men. I, I, I'm afraid of them leaving. And I think that stems from childhood things. And that's more personal. I think on the sport level, I, I did a lot of work and still do a lot of work on fear and the minds of extreme athletes and what pushes certain people in certain realms to really push past the average just skiing. I always questioned why I obsessed about these things, why I had desires to go big and to like, and a lot of it really does stem from that original statement that you said of like trying to be seen. And so like to answer your question fully, it's been kind of this tiptoe of being nervous of letting go of those. Of course, as an adult, you want to work through all of your childhood traumas, but I'm also aware that they've pushed me in really beautiful ways. And they've been a fire within me that have helped create a career in a world and an athletic ability that is very special. So I really like as much as I'm trying to work through those things so that I do have healthy relationships and outside of skiing, my life is smooth and I don't have these triggers from 15, 20 years ago. Like that's, I want that. Like I want the healthy parts, but I'm also very aware that there's a lot of childhood traumas or whatever you want to call it that have brought me to where I am today and trying to like do a good job of finding a balance because I know it's important to have something within you that pushes you. And I'm just trying to find healthier ways to push myself and continue moving forward. But it's been amazing to me because I've always been um, really interested in, in knowing myself to the best of my ability and working on it. And I've never shied away from diving deep into past experiences and events. But it's just amazing that 20 years later, things can still trigger you that you've worked on for such a long time. So it's just a constant, it's, it's work. It's a constant practice. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you have a really profound level of awareness of those triggers. And I can understand what you're saying. And I'm just sort of sitting with it for a minute about how you can identify the positive outcomes of a lot of that motivation to be seen and to just keep driving. At the same time, you want to be driven by sort of a healthy mindset and not sort of a dysfunctional sort of five-year-old wanting to be seen and sort of somehow resolving that. Because it's dangerous. Right. And because if it's, if it's never full, right, if you're always striving for something that you're never going to actually reach, I think then you, it starts to tip over to being unhealthy and sort of unsatisfied. And I don't want my decisions in the mountain to be fueled by some, like, it's really important, especially with filming and especially with starting to like, it's easy to make decisions based on outside perspectives or a desire to prove yourself or like, I don't know, the mountains are a very fragile place. And 
I try to respect them and I never want to make a decision based on an emotional desire. I, I want my thoughts to be clear out there. And I think as I step further and further outside, I also like out further deeper into the mountains. And I, my risk tolerance, of course, is getting higher, but also just the reality of the deeper you are, the more dangerous it is, the bigger the peaks, the more dangerous it is. Like there's not a lot of space for emotional triggers and decision-making. I feel like it's really important too, just to like be able to find the difference between am I doing this because I want to be seen or am I doing this because I want to do it and it's the right decision and just really being able to sit in those moments and listen to the voices in your body and be like, am I scared because this is a really scary thing or is, am I scared because I've got my gut telling me that, hey, something's not right today. And I think putting myself in these dangerous situations has allowed me to be incredibly introspective and it has made me get to know myself because there just isn't room for a lot of error. And I think emotionally loaded decision-making is quite dangerous. And just so I've tried to just, just figure out my head so I can make better decisions. Yeah. Ideally, you're not working that out in the mountains. You've worked that out beforehand and then you can come with them. <laughs> totally. That has to be done here. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So let's give a little bit of background to your skiing career because it didn't start where you are now. It started in, in New England and more of a ski racing career. Tell us about that, how, what that sequence was for you, skiing, loving to ski, and then having dreams of being on the U.S. ski team and then kind of how that all sort of shook out. So I think it's fun to trace it all the way back. Just because I don't have memories of this, I am aware that when I was just under two, my dad took me to Black Mountain, which is a very small ski area in Jackson, New Hampshire, and kind of had me between his legs and like sliding around. So I like to say that I started skiing before I was two. The reality is there is a very big gap between that time frame and when I actually started to ski. And I was really lucky. And I like to always say thank you so much to the school program where in the Mount Washington Valley, there's a day a week where you get out of school early, you get to go to the mountain. I had a single mom and, and things were tight. So they had a program in which you could get really cheap rentals and it wasn't going to break the bank because skiing is a very expensive sport. So I think without this program, I wouldn't necessarily have found skiing in, or fallen in love with skiing the way I did. So every Monday we got out of school early and we'd go to the resort. You'd have your little skis and you would ski around with your friends. So that's when I really fell in love with the sport of skiing. I think that was in third grade. And basically it just was kind of like, this freedom as a child to go where you wanted. You could go fast. You just had freedom, you know, like as a child, especially in this day and age, like it's dangerous out there. Your parents want to keep you safe. But when we were at the ski hill, it was kind of like no rules. And I love that. And I think I found, I just love going fast. And so therefore kind of fast forward, I had a family friend, like I said, a lot of the town that I grew up in had skiing backgrounds or ski racing backgrounds. And I was introduced to a ski racing program, entered a race, ended up winning. And I think back to like what we originally started with, I, I maybe wasn't the most confident kid and was really shy. And so when I won this race, I didn't even like winning to me at that point was like, didn't really register on a bigger scale. But what did register was the attention that I got and like the applaud that I got. And people were so proud of me. And I think back to being seen, I just always wanted people to be proud of me. And I think that is really what kind of made me feel good and just I was a natural at it. And so it came easily. I liked it. And so I just chased it and 
back to the determined part, I chased it to a level of getting invited to, I had a full scholarship to Proctor Academy, which was a small preparatory school in Southern New Hampshire. And that just allowed me opportunities that I probably wouldn't have been able to have in North Conway with my mom working multiple jobs. Ski racing is so expensive. So incredibly grateful to Proctor. And I started traveling the world. I was so lucky. I would go to France to train on the glacier in the fall time and South America in the summer. So like a backwoods uh, young female was able to travel the world competing as an athlete. And I found a lot of confidence in that. I continued to be fast. I continued to get applaud for my skiing. I was lucky enough to get asked on to the U.S. ski team to do kind of a tryout in my junior year of high school. And that was kind of a pivotal moment in my ski career, I think, because in so many ways it was like, this is it. This is my dream. I've been working so hard for this. This is what I want. And then I got there and I realized that like, I kind of got a little bit of an inside view into what that life would look like. And did I want it? Absolutely. But I also saw that there was a lot of really unhealthy, unhealthy competitiveness and a lot of like dog eat dog and, and ski racing. If you're not on top, you are on the bottom and there's no real team. Like there is a team, but you're a high school girl with other high school girls and high school girls can be tough. And so it was just like this really, I didn't feel comfortable in that environment. And I was able to ski really fast and show them what I was capable of, but I didn't have the training that a lot of these girls did in the gym or on the sports psychology side. There was a lot of like testing that was new to me. And long story short, I wasn't asked to be on the US ski team. And as you can imagine, that really, really hit me hard because that was it. That was what I wanted. And I was 16, so I didn't realize that there was anything past that. And in that point, I was like, this is it. I'm not good enough. And so I went into like a pretty desperate spiral and kind of I was diagnosed with depression, which is something that like is interesting because I have a very like I'm a high functioning person with anxiety and depression. And in my head, again, back to like the traumas, like everything in my mind has always been a gift opposed to an issue or a diagnosis. It's like, sure, like I struggle with this thing, but when I get I almost like like when I get really low like in the depression world, I, I notice that I'm more creative. I'm like, my writing is better. I like, kind of like that, like troubled artist comes out of me, you know? I was not shocked that I had depression, but basically this whole experience showed me that there's more out there. I have depression at that point, whatever that meant. And I was like, I'm going to pick myself up and I'm going to keep going. But I didn't necessarily know what that meant. And I, all I knew was ski racing. So I was like, all right, I'm a junior in high school. I still have time. They said no this time, but that's okay. And so I continued to work hard. I decided that I was going to take a year off from college and go to Stratton Mountain School, which was more of a ski academy. And when I went to Stratton, I just realized I did not. I was done. Like I was burnt out. The only reason I was continuing on this path is because it's all I knew. And it's what I had been known for my whole life. I had always been like, this is Kate Zellif, like she's a ski racer, or that's how I met people that it was everything. And so it was really scary to kind of have that moment where you're like, oh my God, I am so involved with this and I want nothing to do with it. And also my, all of my education and all of my opportunities were kind of allowed or like it happened through ski racing. So I also didn't know how to go to college without it because 
again, like I don't have, my family doesn't have a ton of money and academic scholarships like are tough to come by. I was able to get some academic, but if I ski raced in college, I could get basically a full ride. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to the university of New Hampshire. I'm going to ski race for four years. I'm going to get an education and not have debt. And it's going to be all good. Like I'm going to use this tool or like I'm going to use ski racing as a tool. It's a stepping stone. I don't need to obsess about it anymore. And I tried to do that. And I went to UNH and I was incredibly unhappy. And that's when the depression started to like kind of flare up again. I find that if I'm not following my heart and if I'm not like really listening to myself, that's when I notice that I get into these kind of darker places. And so I just was like going through the motions. And again, I, I do, I am, I'm like painfully optimistic, but I ended up blowing my knee out in January of my first season. And instead of being like upset, I was like, yes. I was like, thank God. It felt like a get out of jail free card. I was going to say ticket out of jail. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it was really this big moment because I knew that I blew my knee out. The second it happened, there really wasn't any confusion. I did it fully, ACL, MCL, LCL, like it was a full thing. And I was overwhelmed with relief and not disappointment. And that was like a big turning point in my mind. I was like, if I feel this happy about getting hurt, I this isn't something I can continue doing. And so I called my mom. She happened to be like driving past the ski area, which was really strange. And I was like, hey, I got hurt. I'm going to need you to come pick me up. And I remember being like crying in the back of her car and just saying like, I need to tell you something. Like I felt like I was letting everybody down. I'm like, I don't want to ski race anymore. And her response was, thank God. Like she (laughs) knew that I had really, (laughs) one, she thought I was crazy because she doesn't really have the competitive bug. And she saw how much turmoil that I went through where for me, it was a roller coaster and it was part of the game. But for her, she saw a lot of, down like a lot of like valleys in that whole experience there were some highs and I hung on to the highs but she was ready for that moment and she was like I support you 100% whatever you want to do and it was pretty apparent to me at that time that UNH wasn't the answer college wasn't the answer I was lucky because both of my parents don't have a college education so there wasn't any pressure like they've always been very supportive and they would support me regardless I think if they went to college or not but it was easier for me to say, hey, I'm going to take a break from school because I didn't have, it It wasn't about a college degree ever. So that was kind of a huge turning point for me. And I just felt this huge sigh of relief and kind of the ability to start fresh. And so that's kind of where the the big mountain journey started, but I didn't know it at the time. It was more of like a soul searching journey. I was 20 years old, packed up a forerunner that was like my high school car, built a bed in the back. And just like had, I really didn't know. I just needed to figure out who I was, not ski racing. I knew who I was as a ski racer, but I had no idea what else I liked. I didn't have any hobbies because I would spend all summer skiing. I would spend all fall training. Like I just wanted to like try rock climbing or like go see the Grand Canyon. And so I took three months and I just like really like lots of reflection, lots of journaling, lots of traveling, lots of live music. And I think just allowed myself to be like a teenager. I never like, was a kid, like a kid, like a teenager. Like I was a child and then I was like an elite athlete and the pressure that I put on myself was incredibly unhealthy. And so I just gave myself a year to kind of sort through all that and found myself in Jackson and been here ever since. And this place, I I think I kind of segment my life in my head and coming to Jackson, I, that's, that was kind of like this very beautiful change of scenery that I needed at that time. 
when you talk about the chapter, the zero to 20 chapter, I think there's part, there are parts of it that are relatable. And I, I sort of have this image as you're talking about your story of like brick by brick, you're kind of like making these choices and building your skiing career in your case, because all the reasons make sense, right? Like at first when you're in fifth grade, it's a way to gain confidence and you're doing well and you start to develop a social life and just all the reasons to keep going with it. And then you get this ride to high school, opens up doors and you sort of keep building this house like brick by brick, but like all these other parts of you are sort of latent, right? And they like the other parts of your childhood, they just don't really get to grow. And then like you have this like brick house at 20 and you're like, this is not where I want to be, right? But you don't even like really know you don't even really know yourself out of it because you just haven't had a chance to develop. So I can understand that moment that you blew out your knee and the bubble was burst. It's like the brick house just like lost its foundation and you're like, awesome. Now I can rebuild. And thank goodness, like your family supported you. Your mom, it sounds like was super supportive. And she, I'm just sort of thinking from her perspective too. So she had you at 20 and then this happened to you when you were 20, which must have been kind of um, interesting, like huge pivots at 20, sort of relatable to her too, of in, in her way of kind of understanding and supporting you. And I think she wanted that for herself in a way, you know, like when she had a baby at 20 and would she change that? Absolutely not. But I think she saw her daughter at 20 wanting to go experience life, wanting to go get to know herself, wanting to take the time. And of course, she understood that and she wanted to support that because that's something that she never got. And it, does she have regret about that? No, but like I, I know that as a like a female supporting her daughter and the desire. Also, I think a lot of people are like, you're crazy. You're letting like your 20-year-old daughter like go live out of her car. But my mom didn't have any fear in that way. Like she just like knew that was something that I needed to do. And I think like back to your, your brick house comment, which I, I really like, I had another realization my first year filming with Teton Gravity Research, which was kind of like another childhood dream. And when those things come true, so the USD team dream didn't come true, but, and not to skip forward, but I kind of had that realization when all of my eggs have been in the ski, skiing basket for so long. And that's honestly what it takes to become a professional athlete is you really can't be that consumed in high school parties or boyfriends or things like that's secondary to the goal and I wouldn't change a thing, but I, I got to this childhood goal and I kind of looked around and I was like, okay, now I need to like start focusing on the other parts of life because life is ultimately about balance and relationships and friendships and taking care of the body, mind and soul, not just because in my head, skiing is my career. And so I really try to kind of like equate that or compare that to a woman who is say like, chasing a financial career. If I was seeing a friend of mine who's a workaholic working all hours of the day, because that's what I do. And that's like, I'm lucky that I like it, but I like, I wake up and I think about skiing. I stretch and I train to go ski. I go ski. I come home. I think about the day. I go through footage. I go to bed obsessing about what I'm going to do the next day. You know, like if you break that into it hourly, I am working a lot. And again, it's my passion. So it's different, but I tried to like, take a step back and be like, okay, if a, if a friend of mine was like spending this much time obsessing about like your classic, like traditional career, 
I would think that she needed to like take a step back and enjoy herself and appreciate her friends and like appreciate the other parts of life. And so I think as I've gotten a bit older and I've been in a place where I'm able to like maybe not obsess about skiing so fully, I've realized that like, like you said, there was a lot of times in my life where I have chosen skiing over anything else. And if I hadn't, I might not be where I am, but I'm also realizing as I get older that there's a lot more to life than just career or just like trying to be whatever childhood dream that that is. There's more to life than being sort of measured and scored and given titles and given coverage and features. Because that stuff doesn't change you. You think it's going to. You think you're like, well, when I when I get into a TGR film, I'll be happy. Or when I get into like whatever it is. And then you still have to deal with your shit. Totally. And I think that was really eye-opening to me and, and allowed me, like I like dealing with my shit, but I think it was definitely like, okay, wow. Even this like, because being in a ski movie was like pipe dream. So then you like achieve this crazy thing and you're like, but I'm still me. You know, you're like, oh my gosh, this is so crazy. That whole realization, I think I've had a couple different times, but the latest one hit me pretty hard. And I've been really trying to like, I still am just obsessive and and like love skiing, but I really am also trying to like enjoy the ride or enjoy the process a bit more. Because in ski racing, I didn't enjoy the process. It was all stepping stones to a goal. And that is a really unhealthy approach. And I didn't know that at the time and we all have to learn. But I think I realized that that burnout that I felt and the depression that I was feeling was just result of being outcome-based and not really appreciating the process. Yeah. And maybe not spreading your wings in all the ways that you needed to as just a whole person. In your Jackson years, so you've been there for how many years now? I'm going on my ninth. Oh, gosh. Ninth winter. Crazy. And things have changed a lot. You've had some pivotal moments in your time there distinctly being crowned twice Queen of Corbett's. And I gather that that really changed everything for you as far as visibility and sponsors and, you know, becoming more of a public figure. But I want to hear from you, from your perspective, how that changed for you, like what was different after that? It is funny because prior to that moment, I was like, I just didn't get how it worked. I'm like, I'm, I'm sponsored. And my, I'm not, I wasn't making good money at all. Like I was making like $5,000 a year. But in my like 22-year-old brain, I was like, that's great. I'm making money skiing, like the dream, woohoo. And then I kind of was at a place where I'm like, I don't know how to step forward. Like, I don't know how you break this barrier. I don't know how you get on to the next level. Because I was also competing on the Freeride World Qualifying Tour. So it's basically the double A AA or triple A, I guess, of skiing. So the Freeride World Tour is MLB. And that's like over in... Europe and I was competing on the circuit down and at that time they only took one female which is bogus but they're working on it and I was I got second in the qualifying round by a point and so I was also just like and I've like put all this money and time and effort into this silly system and quite frankly getting onto the freeride world tour was just a means to an end to get into a ski film and so before king and queens I was just kind of at like I don't want to say a dead end, but just confused as to how this whole thing worked. And then I, I am a big fan of the law of attract, law of attraction and visualization. And, and I wanted this thing. Like I wanted to be in a ski movie so bad. And so basically I was approached by a friend of mine and was told that the resort was putting on 
this free ride competition and you jumped into Corbett's and it was like peer judge and it was going to be sweet. And I was so not into competing at that point because I had just like gotten burnt by the whole system. And I was like, it's dumb. I don't need to like be judged again. I think I was also coming off ski racing where I was like, I've done this. Like I've been hard on myself. I'm not a great comp mind either. I get really nervous. And so it's not that fun. And so I was just like, this is the last thing I want to do. Also, I've never skied Corbett's because Corbett's is scary and everybody watches. And I don't like when people watch me. I'm like, I'm not going to do it. Like, that seems dumb. And they're like, the purse is $10,000. And I was like, I don't like being motivated by money. But then I like, <laughs> I was also like, <laughs> whatever. Like, I don't know. I kind of got, I didn't get bullied into it. I got like lovely peer pressured. I'm very grateful for the girls that like, they're like, come on, just do it. And I basically was like, fine. I wasn't even in at the time. I had to write to the resort. And I had to write to Jess McMillan, who was one of my childhood idols. She was a professional female skier on the world tour back in the day. She was also a Warren Miller athlete currently at that time. So it was very intimidating to write to her and be like, hi, I'm a nobody and I want to be in on this competition. But they, none of the professional skier females wanted to be in this competition because it's so gnarly. So they couldn't get any girls into it. So they're like, all right, fine. Like, we'll give you a chance. And so the first year was really crazy because there was zero expectation. And like I said, I had never jumped into Corbett's before. Like I'd never skied Corbett's before. And I love this story too, because it also brings together the community aspect of being a ski bum in Jackson at this time. But the first jump in, to explain Corbett's to people that don't know, it's a very steep couloir that has rock walls on either side. And when you take it as an air, you basically have to step away from the lip so you can't see the landing. So it's very blind very much like falling out of a window because if you picture like meeting snow there's no real definition within your takeoff and then you you get in the air and then you really can't you can kind of see bomb holes but just the way that snow works the contrast is really crazy so you're like it just feels like the floor just leaves you but you see the floor but you can't really tell how far the floor is because that perception is tricky that was the biggest I've ever gone so I like put my hands out I was scared I like definitely like I pulled it together and I landed it was fine but it wasn't the most beautiful jump and then I like had another try at it. And at that point, you're, you're like high on endorphins and you're like excited to go do it again. And so I went down to the bottom and I was by myself. I'm kind of a loner. And I like went down and but I also have amazing friends. And my buddy Keegan Rice, he's like, I watched your first jump. It was amazing. You went huge. But like, here's my thought, like just like a little tweak, like a little control in the air. You're going to do great. And so I was like, OK, like, cool. And so I like because I'm not I'm a ski racer. Like air is still I'm getting better <laughs> at it. But you're like, it's just different. Yeah, right. You're, you're ready to channel anyone's advice. Anybody. Like, give me anything. I'll take anything. And so I'm up there and I just kind of was like ready to go. And I did like what's called a shifty. And like looking back on it now, it's not the most impressive thing. But at that time, it was the most impressive thing that I had ever done on a pair of skis other than like downhill skiing, which is crazy at this point. I think ski racing is so much scarier now that I've stepped away from it. But basically, I landed was proud. A couple other girls went really big. I really did not think much of it. And the way this competition works is it's not an immediate podium at the end. You have this judging criteria. So you all come in the next day as athletes, you watch the footage and you, you write down who you think you should, who should win. You, so it just takes time. So basically four days later was when the award ceremony was. And I wasn't like the next years I was nervous in that waiting period, but this year I didn't care because like there was no expectation. I really was like, I'll probably podium and that'll be sweet because there's like 10 girls and only three stomped and it'll be cool. But then it kind of happened really quickly. It was like, I was crowned the queen and the king, Carl Fosfett at the time was like, 
quite a big deal in the ski industry and had been in the ski industry. And so like me being up on the podium with him was kind of this realization that like, oh, like I belong here. And that year, I think, put me on the map. And then the following year was very much proving grounds that it wasn't a one and done type of thing. I had this desire to show them that I wasn't a one hit wonder. I could do this multiple times. And that was my plan. And I planned to win it. And there was no other way in my head. And those are the unhealthy tendencies, like the very objective based thinking. But at that time, I short, like the second time I shared the podium with Travis Rice. And Travis Rice is a very famous snowboarder, very big in the industry. And when him and I were up on stage that time, I was like, okay, like now we're talking. Like this is the level that I want to be competing at. And I think kind of solidifying back to back, that's when I really felt confident to write to North Face and to be like, I want to be on your team. That definitely was such a turning point in my career. And it's always fun to look back on because like there's like pre-Corbett's and post-Corbett's and my life is very different post-Corbett's. And I'm very lucky because it gave me the ability to step into this new career and kind of let it give me the call. Like it was like I was nobody and I believed in myself and it happened. And that's like always a nice lesson when I'm feeling like a little outside of my comfort zone, whether it be going up to Alaska with like of the best and like not knowing how to deal with slough management or skiing spines and like feeling outside of my comfort zone. It's easy to kind of come back on that Corbett's memory and being like, you had no business being there. You had no idea what you were doing and you, you managed, so you can do it again, you know, just to have that kind of barometer of capability. Yeah. You got this. It, it kind of opens up this whole new chapter with a new set of challenges. And I'm sure there was a lot you had to learn in terms of developing a life that really was based on sponsors too. It seemed that was kind of opened up that reality for you. And that's an ongoing battle. Yeah. So you had to advocate for yourself. Totally. And it's, it's a fun game to play. But I think being a sponsored athlete is like, especially when that's your only income, which is new to me, but it's a very interesting, it's not like you do one thing and then all of a sudden you're sponsored for 10 years and you're good. Like, I think it's interesting because you're constantly trying to push yourself. And we live in a time of extremist culture where like you want to be the best and you want to do the gnarliest thing. And like, just like we talked about trying to find balance in that, trying to enjoy the entire ride and not be so focused on like doing the gnarliest thing. Cause that's not a healthy mindset, but also like the transition period for me, even after, after Corbett's, I was still ski instructing and ski coaching and working gardening in the summer. And the ski industry doesn't have a ton of money and that's okay because we're not here for money. But I also was lucky because I was able to kind of stay grounded. Like, although I was getting all this attention and I was like getting all this praise, I still had to go into work. And I think there was part of that that I was bummed about. I'm like, this is dumb. Like, shouldn't I like be making the big bucks? Like you see professional athletes and you're like, that's what I want. But I think there was also something really beautiful in the fact that like it didn't happen overnight. Like doors opened overnight for sure. But it wasn't like, all of a sudden I was making 100K and didn't have to work. That was not the case at all. So that slow transition, I think, helps me just like stay human. And quite frankly, when I didn't make the US ski team, the way that the girls acted who did and and the way that they treated me and the way that they kind of like saw themselves as better, I didn't like that. And so I kind of made this like pact to myself that God forbid, like I ever make it big, I'm not going to all of a sudden be cocky and look down on people. So I just like it 
the whole experience was like exciting, but I also like was able to stay humble because I was still like working in bars and coaching nine-year-olds, which is quite fun. Yeah, <laughs> still keeping it real. The question of all these contracts is interesting. You know, I interviewed Kimi Fasani recently and she's such an advocate for rewriting the verbiage for female athletes. And I'm wondering from your perspective, so you're probably 10 years younger than she is, maybe, give or take. You know, she has two kids. She is really taking on the sports industry and not letting them get away with these terms, such as pregnancy is a handicapped and an injury and you know, regardless of whether one decides to have a child or not, the point is our bodies are not just sort of extreme sport devices. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, so you're, say, 10 years younger than Kimmy. She may be considered sort of the forefront of that in the snow sports industry. Do you see a change? Do you see these conversations with big corporations as coming to you with more acceptance or are you is that still a struggle i'm incredibly lucky i feel like people like kimmy and elise dogstead and Lindsay dyer and all of these like generation or maybe two generations prior to me like i've heard stories about how they were treated i've heard horror stories about kind of what it was like being a female in the industry and so the interesting thing too about Corbett's is um, the prize money that was gifted or was awarded the first year was actually like really out of whack. I think the men's purse was winner was eight and female was five or even three. And I think at that time, again, I was, I was pretty young and I was just $3,000. Like, come on, I'm into that. Like, I, I didn't want to look a gift horse in the mouth. That's how I was raised. It was like a lot of money to me. People saw that on the internet and went crazy. They're like, what are you doing? Like, this girl did something incredible too. Like, why is she given so much less? And they basically, within I think like 12 or 14 hours, I had an email in my inbox that said that the prize money was equalized and that I would be getting $8,000. And I think that was like the one time where I didn't, it wasn't equal, but it was the wrongs were right so quickly that I didn't have time to even be like, oh, and I had people fighting for me too, which is cool. Like a, I have a community behind me here, Jackson, especially who I've grown up with. And they're like, that's lame. Like Kate deserves it too. So I didn't have to necessarily be that voice. And I know a lot of women have come before me. And so I never want to undermine their work. And I never want to say that we are where we need to be because I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. But my personal experience has always been, have I contractually made what my peers are making? No. And now I am, which is cool. But in my mind, I wasn't where they were. Even if like as a skier in a female world, I was here, I always wanted to genuinely be on par with the boys and therefore I could make what they made. And I understand that a lot of people might struggle with that because they're like, well, you're a female and you can create a baby in your body and you got, you have a different genetic makeup than a man. And And I see all that too. And I'm very aware of like, the changes that need to happen. But my personal experience has been very smooth and I've been very supported. I've also been lucky because my sport, my ski sponsor, Blizzard Technica, we've been together since the beginning. Like they gave me my first discounted pair of skis 
when I was in New Zealand coaching. And so I've created a relationship with them and they treat me as a daughter. And my team manager has a kid and Elise Sogstead, who's a teammate of mine, just had a child and Blizzard is supporting them. And we've had really beautiful conversations about the change it's made. But I mean, that being said, there are still far more men in the industry. It's still very much like a guy's world. And my mom was actually, and still is, she's a, she sells beer and she's like in a man's world. And I've always watched her be very eloquent, very feminine, but also like take no shit. And I think I've kind of taken her approach as she's taught me as a strong woman in finding my voice in the ski industry and not trying to be whiny and not trying to be a jerk because I feel like there's a way to get what you want and to put it out there and to be disciplined as well as like adamant about what you want without being a jerk. And you could use a bunch of different terms. I think females can sometimes be considered a bitch if they say what they want, but a, a, a man can also be some other derogatory term. So I'm just, as I enter into these conversations, I also like I'm not going to let them. I also have a manager, which is very helpful. And she allows, we bounce things off each other and we we go to business. I am going to give my team manager a hug and ask him how his family is and be so excited to see him. But when we start talking about money, I'm also going to approach it like maybe a man would. Or because I have Christine, she knows the right wording and, and she approaches it strongly. And I feel like it's been just like kind of this beautiful combo for me where it's like, yes, women have come a long way, but I also go into these conversations and I ask for what I deserve. And if I, I ask for that and they give it to me. So I've never been turned down. Did they give it to me without me asking? Did they give me what my peer male skier was giving at first? No, but when I asked for it, they did. And I think that's been a real lesson for me is like, Men maybe are less afraid to ask for things than than females because in the past we haven't had the opportunity or it's felt wrong to ask. And it's hard to for me to ask like that's like because it's also your self-worth. You're saying I'm worth this much money. And that's like really strange sometimes. But I feel like to answer your question, like because of all of these incredible people before me or incredible women before me who have paved the way and had these tough conversations, I feel more confident heading into these conversations. And I think that's just like how things work. Things are changing. Are they where they need to be? No, but it is slowly changing. And the beautiful part is you're seeing it like, or I'm definitely seeing it. The more women get the opportunity and the space, the, the female skiing is just like off the charts right now. There's, I can think of 10 female skiers that are currently just like doing things that women have never done on a pair of skis before. And to see that is incredible. Yeah. I feel like the tide is changing. And I think there's a lesson to the story you just told about showing up. And I think the word deserve is, that's the way Abby Wambach talks about it too. When in Wolfback, her book, which I love, which touches on the equal pay and just advocating for what you deserve, right? And not like, oh, yeah, I want this or in a whiny way, but this is just purely about what you've earned. <laughs> As women, like, the more we believe in ourselves and the more we believe in each other and the more we advocate for each other, the better off we're going to be. And I think the biggest thing that's changing within the ski industry is because of the whole token female patriarchy we've been operating in here for the past, I don't even know how many years within the ski industry where they gave us this idea that only there's space for one or two, like, which has made us kind of turn against each other and be more catty and be more competitive. Like, 
that's not serving anyone. And I think the most beautiful thing that I've seen in this industry that is ultimately pushing the sport is female supporting females. And I just like, I want to see more of that because that's been the single most empowering thing to me is having another female do something off a cliff and being like, oh my God, a woman did that. Therefore, I can do that. Or telling a young girl like who's not certain of it that she can do it. Like the way that a female can inspire another female is incredible. And I just like, we need more of that. So that would be my closing statement on that one. Right. And better together. We can do so much more together. And the fact of those quotas, they are and were still mechanisms of sort of holding back. I mean, there's no way that one woman can change the field. But if there's a collective, then all sorts of things can happen. It's really cool to watch. So let's talk about flying. It's kind of your, well, I don't want to describe it because I want you to describe it, but this is how I sort of first learned about you is through your paragliding and the images that you put out there, your artistry, I'm going to call it. But I want you to take us through your journey with flying when the seed was planted and how that has developed most recently. Well, it's funny that we started the conversation with kind of like a dissection dissection of like the childhood stuff because I think paragliding the seed was planted as a very very young child because I knew that my dad paraglided. And my dad paraglided in a time where not many people were paragliding. The intersection of the sport was like in the 80s and they actually like my understanding is the intersection of the sport from Europe to the US was actually in my backyard at Whitehorse Ledge in North Common, New Hampshire when John Bouchard brought over this sketchy square paraglider from Chamonix and decided to jump off this 800-foot ledge. And my dad, being a young adventurous man and having another friend who knew John and were interested, kind of just hopped on this bandwagon that is so cowboy, especially now because the sport is still very rogue and unregulated in some ways. And it's far more regulated and it's getting far more regulated. But to think about those boys using like basically a piece of fabric, like, and no reserve parachute, very little understanding of how the whole thing worked. And I've learned most of this since learning to paraglide. And I think that's why I'm so enamored by it, because I look back and I'm like, wow, I just don't really understand how you all are still alive. But my dad had his paragliding logbook from learning to fly in 1991 that I got a hold of. And again, my dad wasn't really in the picture so that I I had like this little like insight to his world when he was 26 years old. He was meeting, he met my mom at that point. He was traveling to Europe to fly. I have a photo of him on my wall with the Matterhorn behind him and his wing is like this gigantic crate. Like it's just crazy what they flew with. But I think it was more of that chasing of storytelling. And I really like skiing. He really likes skiing. He really likes flying. Like sure, I'll really like that. Maybe I'll be really good at that too. There was just kind of this interest and I had always put it off though because it's quite expensive and it takes a lot of time and I was so consumed in skiing that I couldn't necessarily do both after my first year of filming with Teton Gravity Research and I really felt that my career was somewhat solidified is the wrong term, but I was confident that I would get another shot at doing it all again next year and so I had some room to grow. That being said, I was coming off a broken leg. I had fractured my tibial plateau in March right when the pandemic hit. So that was kind of interesting because it was like this 
beautiful time for me to recover. And so I basically recovered really quickly because I'm obsessive, like we've talked about. And I PT is falls into that realm of just like, whatever. So I got back on my feet in record time and the world was still shut down. There was no way I was going to South America to ski. And this part is like more like kind of woo woo, like hippie, but I was riding my bike around. I could finally ride my bike around again. Being an independent person when I'm injured, I really struggle with having to rely on other people as well as not being able to go deep into the mountains and charge. Like that's where I'm able to level my mind. When I get hurt, I'm I need to sit with my thoughts, which I sometimes think is um, a blessing in disguise. But I basically was just starting to get stir crazy. I was biking around and noticed these ravens that were just playing in thermals and kind of just watched them for a little bit and thought about how cool it would be to know how to fly. And I called my dad and he didn't answer. And then I called this other gentleman, Scott, who owns the school here in Jackson, the paragliding school, and called him up and was like, hey, like, I want to fly. He's like, perfect. We had our first class like last week. We're having our second class on Thursday. Bring X amount of dollars. Be there. I'll get you a wing. We'll get you all set up. And I was like, this is happening so quickly. And then my dad called me back. He's like, sorry, I missed your call. I had like the most epic flight. I was up in the air the longest I have been in years, blah, blah, blah. So it just felt very like serendipitous. And like, I'm very aware of when life feels like it's in flow and when life feels like you're fighting upstream. And sometimes life like kind of feels like you're like, in a current and you just got to like go with it. And this, that's what flying has been for me. It's just been like, I kind of like hopped in and then it's just been like ripping ever since. And so basically flying was like a change of pace for me. It was something that was new. I didn't have to be a professional at it. Although I still felt that pressure because everyone that I was learning from knew I was a professional skier. And so they know that I have a risk tolerance and they know that I, but it's different paragliding is less athletic than skiing. It's more, I feel like it's more being a meteorologist, like knowing your weather is more important than your athletic ability in this sport. And so I think that's also why I gravitated towards it because it didn't come as easily as I had expected it simply because there was so much to learn about how the air worked. And I guess being someone who has been on the ground their whole life, you don't understand how much is going on up there until you're in it because you can't see it. And then you're like, oh my God, there is like actually so much, and it keeps you alive. Like, it's not like, oh, like knowing these things is cool. It's like, no, if you want to stay alive, you need to know these things. And I think there was part of me that just like wanted to flex my brain in these ways. And I think that's also why I like big mountain skiing, because you have to understand snow science and weather patterns. And it's more than just an athletic endeavor. And so it kind of like checked off multiple boxes that skiing also does for me. But I had some scary flights, some really turbulent flights. I had some friends get hurt within that first year. And I kind of had this like kind of scary realization that I'm taking a lot of risk. And I, I've been okay with my risk on a pair of skis because it's how I make a living. It's what I've been doing for a very long time. I've had good conversations with my mom about my risk and how I'm calculated and how I make these decisions. But as a beginner paraglider, I didn't feel as confident in my decision making. So I kind of like felt selfish sometimes in my risk taking because in skiing I genuinely can be like I I know like through and through I know I can do this a lot of the launches that I took I was like who knows which was exciting but it was also kind of like a heavy it almost felt heavy and so that first year I was pretty grateful to put my paraglider away when it became fall time but it's just like really wanting to be good at this like complex sport that like you're flying and you're it's like human flight like yes you have assistance but 
there's no motor, there's nothing that's, it's like you are hooked to this thing. It's a crazy, it's just crazy. It really is. Sometimes when I like look at friends flying, even though I'm flying and I know what that is, I look at them and I'm like, what is a crazy thing you're doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm in one too. (laughs) It's crazy to see a human flying in the air. I mean, fundamentally, it just is, is a crazy visual. How has flying changed you? I think that it's given me an extra, like, I found confidence as like when I found skiing. And I feel like I was able to find confidence. I know how to fly. Not many people can say they can fly. Like, and that's not like a braggy statement. But sometimes if I'm like heading into a board meeting with North Face, and I'm like, do I know how to do this? I'm like, well, you know how to fly. So you could probably do this. I kind of like use it as that barometer of like, I can do this thing that a lot of people have never experienced and they should experience. And I'm all about supporting people that want to learn to fly. But it's kind of allowed me to just have this like one more feeling of confidence. I handled that like gnarly flight. I can handle this meeting. I can handle this social anxiety because I, that was way harder. And there's so many ways to do it, you know, like there's like speed riding and there's like cross country. And it's just like, I mean, you could spend many lifetimes trying to figure out flight. It opens up such a different world and such a different scope of challenges. And it really resonates with me what you said about the level of appreciation you have for life, not just because it's there's an inherent risk in flying, but there's something about the sort of exhilaration that then makes just simply being on the ground. Like sometimes I just love the ground, being safely on the ground after just kind of like your wits have been, you know, you've had to focus so hard on the task at hand and fully capable, but still like fully focused, fully taking both the science and the art of flying all of your experiences and also some experiences you just don't, nothing can amount to what the task at hand is. It can just be your intuition reading the environment and the factors. And then being on the ground after that, sometimes I just feel like... And it's just you. Yeah. It's like, there, yeah, there's no guy bailing you out. There's no like, there's nothing. And that's empowering. Yeah, totally. You can't be like, like, hey, like you're not like on a slope with someone and you're like, hey, do you think this cliff is going to go? Do you think this snow is going to rip? Do you, th- you are like just by yourself and you have to make these decisions. And I think that's incredibly empowering too. Totally. And so then that becomes very transferable, I think, yeah, to like going in the boardroom. And you're like, first of all, no one can take that experience away from me that I can fly. So you kind of, no one needs to know that if they don't want to, but it's still something that you can kind of hold inside of you. I think it's it's basically one of the core concepts of this entire podcast is that the, the, exactly what you've spoken to, I feel like is this sort of empowerment. And we have so many different ways we can fly. Even like, chucking yourself off Corbett's is flying. But there's something about the defying gravity that is is super empowering. Okay, we're going to do a speed round and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. Sound good? Cool. Sounds good. So if you could fly around the world with one message, what would it be? I would say something along the lines of life is really short, so make sure you do everything you want to do. What have you done by 9 a.m. on a typical day? If I'm lucky, I've eaten chocolate chip pancakes with real New Hampshire maple syrup and drinking, drank too many cups of coffee. What is something that people often get wrong about you? 
I'm like a super goofball and quite nerdy. And I think people think that I'm cooler than I am. Uh, What are you most proud of? I don't have an enemy at this point in the game. I've gone through different companies and I've skied with different people and I've had different relationships in ski racing and at home. And I like that I can go anywhere and I'm really excited to see everybody and I'm excited to see how they're doing. And I feel like I've been very kind on this journey and it's been nice because I just, I don't know, I think human connection is one of the most important parts about life. And I'm really grateful that I feel that fluidity. I can enter any room and be really grateful that I'm surrounded by the people I'm surrounded by. And there are times in my life where I maybe thought that being a bully was cool or that like not being nice or like being nice shouldn't be a priority, but I'm very proud of that part of my life. Like no matter where I've been, I've always had a really incredible group of people around me and just having the support that I have, I'm I'm really proud of that. It feels like a conscious choice. It's especially these days, it feels like making enemies seems very typical. And life is better, like, and not to like not have opinions, but I've always been able to see people's opinion and and especially now in such a polarized world it's nice to just like be able to meet people where they're at and I think that's a skill that I'm very grateful to have it's like whether you want a vaccine or not or whether you want to wear a mask or not or whoever you want to vote for that's fine as long as you want to like be a good person and have a good conversation I'm willing to listen all right let's end it on food what's your favorite meal on a stormy winter day chocolate chip pancakes. Love them so much with real maple syrup. (laughs) I can eat them breakfast, lunch, and dinner, every variation, and my coffee. I like oat milk in my coffee. I like chocolate chips, bananas, strawberries. I could go on and on about pancakes. All my friends know that. There is a bit like, and sometimes in the winter when I'm really grinding and it's like, I barely get home and time to sleep before the next day, I'll have pancakes every meal of the day. And that's sometimes when my friends know that I'm like in a it's a great place, but that's when they're like, all right, you need to like, do you want to come over for dinner? Like you need some vegetables. <laughs> do you have any advice that you would give your younger self that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think I had this as my younger self because of really strong women or people around me. But my understanding is the more you put yourself out there, the easier it is to continue putting yourself out there. And really incredible things live on that growth edge that seems really scary. But the more that you spend time on that growth edge, it seems less and less uncomfortable. And so I feel like stepping out of your comfort zone in like a maybe more well-rounded way to say it is like something that I'm proud of my younger self for doing, but think that that would be something if I could go back in time and just say, keep pushing past that comfort zone, keep believing in yourself and knowing because once you start doing it, it's just like anything. It's like a muscle. If you train it, you get better at it and stepping outside of your comfort zone, whether that be giving someone a compliment, which I find was really hard as a child, like for some reason, or going and trying out for the USQ team that seems really intimidating and scary. Like anytime you do that, you either make someone feel really incredible or you learn something incredible, like a lesson, like that ski racing maybe isn't for you. So just like not being afraid to push yourself outside your comfort zone because the worst that can happen is you quote unquote fail, but all of my best lessons have come from quote unquote failure. And I don't really love that word, but I think you learn so much more when you're not in that safety bubble. So I'm always telling myself that still to this day is like anytime it feels a little bit uncomfortable, a nudge from within is really helpful. Yeah. And something shifts when we get into a place where we're not comfortable. And I think that's what you're speaking to. Absolutely. And it's a good place to be because you're like, thinking on, yeah, you can just appreciate also when someone else is uncomfortable too. You know, you're like, oh, I've been in that place. Good for you. This is crazy. How can I support you? Like, it's nice to like 
know what that feels like and then be able to support other people in your life stepping out as well. And it also debunks the myth of perfection, which is helpful for all of us. Totally. Perfection is so, so like, I think, well, that's a double-edged sword because perfection has been something I've been chasing my whole life. But I've also realized that there's like, what is perfection and imperfection is actually like where some beautiful things come into play. And I think that's what we're starting to realize as humans is that like, we don't need to be perfect. And life is like pretty tricky and vulnerability is like becoming hot, which I like because like vulnerability and like being a human and being able to connect with people and being nice, like it's just so much easier that way. And I think just not being afraid to share those parts of yourself is where like the real beauty in life starts to sprout. Katie, thank you for this time and thank you for being so raw and honest and present and generous with all of your thoughts and reflections and your story. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. I was honored to be invited. So thank you, Sylvia. This conversation with Katie Zeloff was a lot of fun. I hope you loved this journey as much as I did. Her life is transformed as much by the achievements and features and films and trips and recognition as it is by her desire to get out there herself, the desire to put her energy into everything she does. I mean, who has a personal motto, hold it wide open, and isn't full on into life's experiences? I see this in her flying, too, because although, sure, there are goals and dreams you can have about paragliding, like flying off of Mount Washington in New Hampshire, that's one, it is in the process of flying that the transformation really happens. And you've got to love that. Bringing a pro-athlete approach to flying is really interesting, too. The endurance of repetitive actions and honing in on precision and micro-adjustments, ah, It's just the stuff that makes great and safe pilots. Hey, all you athletes or anyone who finds joy in practice and perspective, reach out. Let's find a way for you to fly if you're not already. I think also of this intuitive part. Intuition is a muscle. We come to it and stretch it and build it through our life's experiences, through living and reflecting and being attuned to what feels right. So vague, I know, But sometimes we just know when we feel like swimming upstream and we lose touch with parts of ourselves. This feeling of misalignment and then pulling out of it is the only way that we actually know alignment. It's like the only way we know hot is to know cold. The only way to know joy is to have felt deep sadness and sorrow. We define so much around us by contrast. Find your full potential and let down your artifice. Be receptive and focused at the same time. What did you get from this conversation? What comes up for you? Transformation requires a vision. It requires a version of you that you aspire to be. It requires a direction in which to walk. Women who fly, metaphorically and literally, tap into something with benefits that go way beyond the flight, long after the landing and the flight is over. To find out more about Katie and what she's up to, there are links in our show notes, including the Teton Gravity research films Stoke the Fire from 2021 and Make Believe from 2020. But there will be more coming, so stay tuned. You've been listening to the When Women Fly podcast, an independent creative project founded by me, Sylvia Winter, to amplify stories and expand our vocabulary when it comes to ways in which we fly, how we do it, 
and why it's important. What do you see in the eyes of a woman who flies, who moves the world defying limitations and accesses reserves of determination that go way beyond the physical? You see something, the spirit of flight, imprinted confidence, drive, a sense of freedom. I am so glad that you are here for this conversation with Katie today. Season two is in full swing. Don't miss anything. Subscribe to this podcast and join our weekly newsletter. Our website has links to more about the guests, the podcast, and other news that I just can't fit into the podcast. If this episode or any episode resonates with you, share it and you will have amplified a story that just might spark a pivotal moment for someone. Also, every time you share this podcast, it helps us grow. Okay, that's a wrap. I send you love and light and strength and flight, however that shows up for you today. Celebrate the transformative power of story. The world needs women who fly. Let's keep learning together. Be bold, be brave, and fly. I'll see you next time.